0: And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk, but they are by no means a substitute for the local church. So you need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. You can turn to Matthew chapter one if you are uh, wanting to. There's a reason, though. You're not. It's not necessary. For those of you who might be newer to the Christian faith or you don't know your way around your Bible that well, uh, I have done what I did last uh, time I preached, um, and I don't normally do this, so don't get used to this. Um, I am going to be putting up the various passages that we're going to consider up on the screen so that I can show you and you can... Focus not so much on trying to find out where a book of the Bible is, but rather you can relax and look and observe the actual Word of God and ask yourself, therefore, what must I do? What must I understand? But as always, I will tell every one of you if you know your Bible well enough to find these books, instead, you should be opening your Bible there. Uh, You know my personal conviction of not using electronic uh, Bibles in the church service not that there's something wrong with it, not that it's sin, simply the reality that in this time you want to be capable of not just hearing the message, but then making notes in your Bible so that you don't forget one week later what was going on in that text. You want to be able to equip yourself. Uh, the, The electronic Bible is awesome when you come uh, and you're out at a coffee shop and somebody asks you something, and you're like, well, let me find that. And you can look up a verse very quickly. But what is far more valuable is that ability to have this with you and you know how to use it and use it well. So we come again to, if you haven't figured out by now, the subject of salvation. Um, we come to that subject that we must never tire of learning and knowing and understanding. And it is the work of salvation by God toward sinners. What's interesting to me is that Christians seem to think that they understand their salvation far better than they really understand their salvation. I mean that not by a rebuke. I just find that oftentimes when I'm talking to people, that they get so comfortable with the terms, they get so comfortable with the words, that somehow they forget what they mean. And so we throw the terms around, and then we, when asked, well, what does that mean? It's like, well, I, uh, and, they, and they fumble and, and struggle. And I want you to see that these words have meaning, and these terms are used by God, and that God created a rich vocabulary on almost every subject. But one of the most beautiful subjects that he gave us many different terms for is the idea of salvation and deliverance. And so we have this rich vocabulary we looked at a couple weeks ago in the Old Testament that is describing our salvation. You may recall that. We saw that the salvation that was spoken of there is a lot bigger than somehow just going to heaven or forgiveness of sin. It included actually a rescuing from danger and enemies and a hope for a renewed creation. And that is what we want to look at again today, now in the New Testament. And so we have a privilege then to look at these passages out of the New Testament and begin to see how now the writers of the New Testament picked up the same ideas from the old and they developed them even more, now having had Christ come and secure his uh, the work of salvation upon that cross. And so what I want to remind you, before we get into the specifics, is salvation in the Bible requires us to pull away from the tendency to think in small or limited ways. We did just do that. We'd want to not think about salvation in a limited way. And most of the time when I ask a person, what do you mean by being saved? Well, I'm forgiven. That's a good thing. But that's not even remotely all of what is meant. I'm going to go to heaven. I'll have eternal life, all this, all that. And as a result, what we do is we have all of these small little parts of the salvation, and we don't keep in mind the grandeur of what God is accomplishing on our behalf for his glory. And so I want you to hopefully allow your mind to just expand a bit and begin to appreciate what it is that God has done for you and I. Now, we talked about, uh, in the Old Testament, a couple of different, or, or several different things, and we covered a lot of ground, and that when we talk about salvation, it is a broad subject. And so when we talk about salvation, even in the New Testament, I want to repeat it. Salvation is always in the Bible seen holistically that means body and soul, body and spirit. It is the total reality, the total issue that is uh, the problem of sin and death from which we will be saved. But it's not even just talking about you and I. It is talking about salvation of the entire universe, in different ways, but it is still nonetheless talking about it in a very holistic sense. And what we kind of do is turn it into a spiritual salvation. We're spiritually saved, and then we don't really go beyond that. And then when we are afflicted by sickness, when we are afflicted by persecution, pain, suffering, and other sorts of things, we can lose heart because we don't understand from which God has saved us. The second thing you should always remember is that you will never save yourself. You will never find salvation in obedience. You will never find salvation in worship. You cannot save yourself through those things. King David in Psalm 119 said it as cleanly as you can say it. In Psalm 119, 146, he says, save me so that I may Observe your testimonies, your law, your word. Many a man, many a woman will find themselves under the wrath of God because they keep on trying to clean up their life, straighten their way, get better, fix this, fix that, and somehow think that in doing that, they shall be received by God. They will not. There is countless men and women who are attempting to do many a religious activity, participate in religious duties, all sorts of things that they think, I must do this and then I might be saved. But the Bible says it the exact opposite. You must be saved and then you can, for the first time in your life, do it. There are men and women in this room, young and old, right now who are singing praises to God that have no right to sing a praise. There are men and women in this room right now who are bowing the head and closing their eyes and taking communion and opening their Bibles and doing all of the religious externals, which is not bad. None of them are bad, but they have never yet trusted in Christ. In other words, they're not yet saved and therefore they will not and cannot observe. So this is no small thing to understand what it means to be saved. We obey simply because we were first saved. We love God and we worship God properly because he first saved us. So different than what you hear within so many of the churches, sadly even, today. And so we go into the New Testament and we now begin to see the glory of salvation. So the next term that we're going to do, and we're just going to pick up as if I was uh, doing it from uh, what I was doing two weeks ago, we now pick up the the New Testament terminology for um, salvation. Yes. Um, The first one is simply the word save, which isn't real deep, right? You're like, well, okay, that makes sense. But in the Greek, there are several words. The Greek is what the New Testament was written in. They have several different words for that word that we translate as save. For this one, it's one that some of you know of. It's the Greek word sozo. In fact, there's people who love to use the sozo idea and that word now in holistic medicine and, and various types of homeopathic uh, things that they think are, well, this is a, this is a sozo product and whoever's got a phone on, please turn off. Um, and if any of you else do, please check for that. It's always helpful. Um, Sozo is this idea that we we think about of holistic salvation and how it's going to save us, but it's almost always still centered here and now. Um, we, we think about sozo or this holistic healing, and we think about how the body and the soul are healed. And so we do it through meditation, through chiropractic, through medicine, through herbs, through oils, through acupuncture, through hiking, through exercise, All of these different ways that will come up and and produce for us, and they will talk about it being this holistic work. Beloved, I I just want to say it to you as bluntly as I can the only thing that can resolve your soul is Christ, ever and always. You can fix your body. You can take all sorts of medicine. You can do all kinds of things. You can even feel a lot better and think that you're somehow dealing with your soul. But if it's not rooted and grounded in the finished work of Christ from beginning to end, it is something that's a cheap substitute. To feel peace but not to have the peace with God is just a lie. To feel alive and yet be dead in your sins is to be dead in your sins. So keep in mind that when we talk about these terms and these ideas, that we have nothing in our mind, or the Bible has nothing in its mind about us having our best life now, or of improving our life, or getting it fixed, or having it better. It is looking at something far better than that and far deeper than that, and that's what's built into this word sozo. It simply means to save, preserve from harm, or to rescue and here in Matthew: 121, you have the first time it's used. Uh, she, here is a prophecy, uh, a, a declaration to Joseph. And, and he and speaking about Mary, and it says, "And she, Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name. not you may think about it, but you will, you shall, you must call his name Jesus. Why? For this reason, it is he. Who will save his people from their sins? It is he who will save his people from their sins. The imperative, the command is you shall call his name Jesus. Why? Because built into the very name of Jesus is the essence of who he is. He must be called Jesus because Jesus means the one who saves, the Savior. And so in this context, Joseph, this godly man who is now deeply confused because uh, he has a virgin wife and, and he's in the betrothal stage where there is no consummation yet of the marriage, and now she is found pregnant, and he's confused as any righteous man would be as to what's going on, and now he's being informed that this is all good, right, and not only right, but actually holy, and that God is going to finally bring about the work of salvation, and it's going to be this little one in his beloved bride's womb, and he shall call him Jesus. Why? Because the weight of the sin of the people would finally be removed by Jesus. Everything that the Old Testament that we looked at two weeks ago was looking forward to, all of the hope and the, the the angst and the the hurt and the sorrow and the joy and the anticipation, all of it was never realized. They all died believing in the coming Messiah, but never saw the coming Savior. They None, none of them did. None of them could see it, but by faith, they believed that God would do it. 400 years of silence, 400 years of persecution, 400 years the nation of Israel was traded from one nation to another as if they were a deck of trading cards, all because they were under their their sin and under the judgment of God. And now, now the time has come, and God will save his people. The grand mystery that is said here is how. how. Will he save them? Will he come on a horse and defeat the enemies? No, not now. Not at this point, not at this coming. Will he become that, that one that will rampage through the nations, destroying them, knocking them down and, and bringing them into subjugation? No, that's not how he's going to save his people. He will save them out from under what? Their sin. That's the problem. That's your problem. That's your problem. That's my problem. That's all of our problems. It's never going to be something that is a feeling or or some external pressure or some depression upon you. It will always be sin that must be first resolved. And that is a promise. The next verse that we go to is Matthew 14, verse 30. Again, if you have the ability to turn to your Bible, I want to hear pages. But seeing the wind, he became afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. Now, who is going on? Uh, Who's in this and what's going on? Well, this is a story that many of you will recognize where the disciples are out in the boat. These guys are fishermen. They know how boats work. They also know how they can sink. A great storm comes up and they look out and they see Jesus walking on the water and people always laugh. I actually got mocked about this. I left my Bible on uh, the front reception desk of a place I worked and uh, I had gone to do some other duties, came back, and the guy I worked with was reading my Bible. And so I said, "I said you can keep reading that if you want. He's like, I'm curious, do you really believe that happened? And, and, and his situation was uh, where the axe head floated with Elijah or Elisha. And I said, yeah. And he just rolled his eyes He's like, you're an idiot. And I I, we talked, and he just thought it was absolutely stupid. Well, it's stories like this that people look at, and they're like, I don't believe that. That's stupid. Now, mind you, they'll believe just about everything else under the sun, but they can't accept that, which is okay. That is because their eyes are blind. Having said that, though, if Christ is God, and if Jesus Christ is the creator of all things, then when Christ interacts with his creation, he can make it do whatever he wants, And so when he holds bread and he begins to break it and give it to others, he can make it constantly divide itself because he is the master of all things creator because they were all made by him for him and through him. And when he walks on water, you and I sink. When he walks on water, it commands, it obeys his command and it becomes something that he might walk on. Well, Peter sees him and Peter being the wonderful man that he is, he wants to go out to be with his Lord. So he actually asks the Lord, may I come out? And then once he's out there, he's surrounded by all these waves still, though he's walking on water, keep that in your head, And all he can see is the waves, and now he begins to doubt, and now he begins to sink. And once he begins to sink, he cries out here, Lord, save me. Lord, save me. He's not saying, save me from my sins. It's a very simple one. I'm drowning. I need salvation. And the Lord, in his great mercy and kindness, reaches and takes him, and he picks him up, and he goes into the boat, and then everything becomes calm. But isn't that a picture of all of us? How many of you have talked and sung with great fervency some song about uh, suffering and being faithful, and yet I will look to you, and I will do this, and I will be bold, and I stand on the finished promises of Christ. And then the first time you become the object of ridicule or suffering, you find out that you're more like Peter than you like to admit. How many times have you withheld when you could have spoken? How many times have you shied away because you were filled with doubt? That is the reality of us all. And so in, God, in the Lord's kindness, he gives them a mild rebuke, and he says, why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? And yet that's you and I. We also will have times where you will have uh, uh, something from the doctor that you'll be told that will terrify you. And now some people will get themselves into such a knot because they're not sure, should I pray for this or not? I don't know. Of course you pray for it. (laughs) Peter would have drowned if he hadn't just cried out and said, save me. When you're suffering and when you are afflicted and when you're ill and you don't know what's going to happen There is nothing wrong for you to cry out, oh, Father. My son, at one point, many of you know the story, we thought he had cystic fibrosis and he was a little baby and he could barely breathe and... And he, he, it was just so hard, and I was staying up all night long because all I could do was hear his labored breathing, and he's a little baby, and I just walked around the front room holding him, kissing him, hugging him, and praying, oh, save my son. There's nothing in there that would be shameful. The God who saves saves in so many different ways, but praise God, he saves to the uttermost. Our next one is in Romans 5, maybe. Romans 5, verses 9 and 10. Now, this one's a thorough one, so settle down and and, and pay attention. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. What I want you to see here in this passage is is something that's simply so jam-packed with hope. And so first thing I want you to notice here is the verb tenses, the verb tenses. Notice in verse 9, so look down and observe it, or look up at the screen and observe it. Much more than having now been justified through by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. The having been justified is a past tense, and the we shall be saved is a future tense. How often do you speak of your salvation primarily in a past tense? I was saved. And that's not wrong, but the Bible actually emphasizes the opposite, the future salvation. And it's when you get the future aspect of that salvation understood that things in your life begin to make sense. How you handle money, how you view money, how you view possessions, how you view relationships, how you view everything in this world changes when you understand better, we shall be saved. When that is our Hope now, having been justified, so much we could say on that, not enough time to say almost any of it. To have been justified by his blood simply is speaking of the fact that you and I, though guilty in our sin, with nothing to offer, that God, through his Son, now declares you and I to be righteous. I I don't know if you're like me, but is there anything maybe in your life that you still shake your head with shame? Is there anything that you ever did that you're like, what a fool? Have you ever thought about if I could go back? But you can't, can you? You can't. You can't fix them. That is a hopelessness of the human condition. Big, small, doesn't matter. Absolute perfection from the moment of conception on is the demand of God. You must be like him, holy and perfect, and you cannot and will not ever be it. Where then is your hope? You say, I'll try better. So what? You can never go back. You'll never fix it. It lies there condemning you forever. And even when you start to fix some of the things that you really think are bad, you find out later on that those are only a small picture of the millions of things that you commit in the way of sin without even the thought. And of course, you surround yourself with your friends and your family, and they all do the same thing. And so it ain't no big thing, right? Except that it's all on you. The idea of being justified is that the one court that matters, the one judge that matters, God himself, your maker and sustainer, he now declares you righteous. Not just back to neutral. He declares you righteous, not because you are righteous, but because of the righteous work and reality of Jesus our Lord. And so he says, much more than having now been Justify. Note the word now, for it means it is true for all who have been justified. We are already fully justified. We will, you will never be, beloved, more righteous than the day you believed. Now, to listen to you and to listen maybe to me on my bad days as well, you would question that because we constantly beat ourselves up and trip over it and we feel like, oh, we're doing so badly, but it never will be based upon what you do or don't do or can do. It will always and ever be based on what Christ has done on your behalf. so now you have this justification, but in the future... You're waiting for a salvation. Another thing to notice is that we shall be saved is in the passive voice, meaning it's something that's done to us, not something we do ourselves. How many times have you made that foolish error in your life where somebody comes alongside you and just offers to help you because you've made a mess of your life, right? Maybe it's your finances. They are so bad that you, you, you despair of ever digging out. And they say, look, if you'd like, I'd, I'd be happy to sit down and meet with you. Maybe we can work some things out. I'm pretty good with understanding money, and so I can help you in that. And, and you say, no, I, I got it. I got it. I'll fix it. It's on me. I did it to myself. I got to fix this. And this is the reality of how people approach their life before God. They, they, they got it. I'll fix it. I'll figure it out. Well, they can't. The salvation that is waiting for you is not something you achieve, it is something being done to you by God. A couple of other points of emphasis is that these terms are in the indicative. It means it's, it's a fact, a reality. It's not that we hope to be saved, we might be saved. It is already an established fact now that in the future we shall be saved. And so this justification and this saving from wrath is something that we never will accomplish because we cannot. What is it we're saved from? From the wrath of God. How many of you walk with that awareness of his wrath? not upon you, not if you have Jesus Christ, you shall be saved from the wrath of God. The wrath of God is something unseen today. You don't see it. You see glimmers of it. You see small tastes of it at times, but you don't understand the wrath of God. I don't understand the wrath of God. The wrath of God is not just a smack upside the head because you're doing something dumb. It is the unending, infinite, outpouring of the wrath of God upon those who are his rebels. You, if you are not in Christ, are under that wrath. It is not just a boiling anger of some dad who loses his temper and smacks his child and kicks him down the hall and says, get out of my sight. That's not what wrath of God speaks of. It is the pure, undiluted, absolute, righteous indignation against those who have done wrong a holy God in the face of an unholy man. The Bible says that the kindness of God right now is literally causing us, anyone here who is not in Christ, all it is doing is God's kindness is causing you to store up his wrath. An unending, infinite barrel of wrath that for the rest of eternity shall be yours to be in. The horror of hell is not where you're left to your own devices and your own miseries. The horror of hell is not even the absence of God. You would find relief there. The horror of hell is that there will never be anything but his wrath. How many of you are excited? I don't want to see hands, but how many of you are excited when you do see the bulbs starting to push up through the ground, even though they're all like, we should never have done this? <laughs> how many of you are starting to notice that some of the trees are starting to get their buds, Right? How many of you enjoyed that 70 degree day or whatever it was a few days ago and, and were like, yes, that's grace. You don't deserve it, I don't deserve it. That's just grace. God giving you the grace of, a, of another day to breathe, the, the, the rich aroma of fresh baked bread, the laughter of your children, the pleasure of a good joke and hell will be the absence of all. Every tiny little thing We've been saved from it. We shall be saved from that day, the day in which he looks at you and he judges you and he says guilty. No Christian will know what that's like. No Christian will know what it's like. Why? Because you're not guilty. You have been justified. And then in verse 10, notice he says, for this reason, if while we were enemies, so we, it's not that we got good and then God accepted us, right? While we were in the state of being an enemy, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Again, future tense. So in verse 9, we're saved from his wrath. And then verse 10, we shall be saved by the life of Christ. Why is the resurrection so important? Because in the life of Christ, we find life. So this saving is twofold. It's away from under the wrath of God that we deserve. And it is made and brought into a life that's found in Christ alone. If you could go to the next slide, Ephesians 2. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, it says, Ephesians 2, five. forgive me, I didn't wait for you to turn. Even when we were dead and our transgressions made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Now, in Ephesians, in Ephesians, I have to get there, I forgot to turn myself. In Ephesians chapter two, verse one and two, he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Verse 3, among them we all, too, formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, that were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. There's that wrath again. We're all children of this wrath. We're under the power of Satan. We don't think it. It doesn't matter. We are. We're all dead in our trespasses, trespasses, our sins. But then the glorious two words in verse 4, but God, but God. And we come to verse 5, and he says, even when we were dead in our transgressions, we were made alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. What is it that you've been saved from? Everything in verses 1, 2, and 3. You're saved from death into life. You no longer are under the power and the, the controlling influence of this age. You are no longer under the power and the influence of Satan. You no longer are a slave to the lusts of your flesh. And you are no longer a child of wrath, rather you are a child of God. Everything described there is what we have been saved from. A salvation that offers prosperity and health and comfort is not the gospel, beloved. The false saviors of this age will only promise a longer life, a more beautiful life, a more comfortable life. But they will never deliver ourselves from us. They cannot deliver us from our sin. They cannot deliver us from our death and the wrath that we have that is over us. What are you hoping in? What what is, what, what is it you do? The thing that always amazes me are the ones who will come and do their religious task and duty of going to a church because it's the right thing to do, but they do not rest in Christ. Don't be that person. The religious man will go into the wrath of God as fast as the most disgusting man or woman you can conceive because they're all under the same sentence of death. It is by grace we have been saved. So, You see what Paul is doing here? Now it's not, we shall be saved, but here he's looking backward. And he says, this is from what you've been saved. This is why it's always good to hear testimonies for baptism, isn't it? It always reminds you from what you once walked in, what you once were, and that this is from what I have been saved from. Well, the next uh, term, if you could go to Titus uh, 3, Titus 3, the next term is uh, the... Word soter. It means savior. This one is used in reference to the agent of salvation. So we, it's nice to talk about being saved, but how are we saved? Who saves us? What saves us? Well, the, this is what the word means. Salvation is inextricably linked to a Savior. And we often look for a salvation, beloved, but never bother to find it in the Savior. Again, how many of you spend your time seeking some salvation, but never in the Savior? Well, notice what Titus 3 says in verses 4 through 6. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for man appeared, he saved us. Who is our savior in this passage? It's God. God, our savior, and his love for mankind appeared. He saved us. Who is God in reference here? He is not talking about the Son. He is actually talking about the Father. Oftentimes, it and I think it's a shame, we tend to think of Jesus as our Savior, and we're somehow being saved from an angry father. But it is the Father. Who sent his son into the world? Is the father who sent him to die. He is our savior. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of the regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our savior. Who is our savior now? Jesus. God is Savior, Jesus is Savior, God the Son, God the Father. Now, this all conforms to what we've already considered, so we need not to spend a lot of time. Just note the great saving vocabulary that's used in these three verses, God our Savior, His love, He saved us, His mercy, His washing us clean, and Jesus Christ our Savior. It's just jam-packed with salvation vocabulary. Notice the absolute total absence of our labors, our goodness, our character. He says, not by works, not by deeds of righteousness. It's actually in the emphasis. If you were uh, in in what's called the emphatic position in the Greek, uh, they'll take a phrase and move it to the very front. And in fact, the King James Version does that uh, nicely, where they bring it out to the front to emphasize that. He saved us not through our deeds of righteousness. And so I again tell you, if any of you are sitting here thinking that you're cleaning up your life pretty good and that you're doing okay, and if you do a bit more, you'll probably be okay, I'm telling you it cannot happen that way. You must come to him as exactly as you are a sinner dead in sins in need of salvation, and God will save so the good news is though we cannot obtain our salvation, we cannot obtain our forgiveness right through our efforts. We find it in the mercy, the grace, the kindness of God through Jesus Christ, our Savior. In our next passage in 2 Corinthians 7.10, 2 Corinthians 7.10, we have the term uh, soteria, which means salvation or deliverance salvation or deliverance. I don't have a timer clock, so I have no idea how long I've been going. Um, Just fair warning to everyone, I'm on page five. I've got a sense of the time though. In 2 Corinthians 7.10, for the sour... uh, sour try that again. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Well, this is where we see the way most people, uh, this is where we see it in the way that most people see salvation. It's the saving the soul from hell. I don't go to hell. I don't die. Whatever that means in our mind, but That's what we think. The path to salvation is one where we see our sin, though, he says. This is what you want to pull out of this passage for the sake of this sermon. The sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation. But then there's another kind of sorrow for your sin that's of this world, and it leads you where? To death. And again, how many men and women have concluded that they must be okay because they feel bad? Well, we all feel bad. But that doesn't mean that we are now saved. Listen, beloved, the road to salvation is one where we must confront our sin. The fact that we are sinners. Now, for some people, that can happen like this crushing, massive mountain that falls upon them. They're happy, and they're doing great one day, and the next day, due to whatever circumstances, they become acutely aware of their sinfulness. And I've met people like that. For others, though, it is a creeping awareness it is that growing awareness that they fall short. They start to see more and more and more the fact that they're not as good as they like to think or market themselves, and they have this ever-increasing picture of their sinfulness. And then as they begin to do it, what happens is the, the, the reality that God is right in bringing his wrath upon them starts to grow And that they are dead. But it doesn't matter whether it happens in a moment or it happens over a period of days, months, years, even. I I remember to this day, again, a a woman coming up to me at the end of a sermon. I've been preaching for about five, six years here. She had been a faithful member. I enjoyed talking to her. We would talk about things of the Lord. And one day at the end of the sermon, she came up to me and she was all red-faced. And I was like, I thought she was angry with me. I, I had that skill in getting people angry. And so I thought, oh boy, here it comes. And so I stepped down from the pulpit. I walked up. I said, Hi, how, how, how are you doing? And she she just blurted out, I, I I need to be baptized. And I'm like, okay, I thought you were. And she's like, I just got saved. I'm like, what? I just got saved. It was beautiful. Sitting there, year after year hearing, year and year knowing, and yet not seeing and not believing. And then one day, it all hit. I am guilty. And then more importantly... With no regret, that's what this passage is saying, with no regret, I turned from that and I turned to Christ. And that was the day she saw Christ. That was the day it made sense. She saw it and she she grabbed a hold of him and he was her Lord and Savior. Regardless of where you're at, When you come to salvation, you will turn from every savior, every idol, every false hope without any regret. You won't care anymore because you found life. And if you're looking at this salvation stuff and you're saying, yeah, it's going to cost too much, then you clearly have the sorrow that's leading you to death. Clearly. Because the sorrow that leads to repentance has no regret. You don't care one bit. You don't care what people think of you. You don't care how much snot's coming down your face because you're crying. You don't care about anything except you need Christ. He is my Savior, and he is good to save. Then the next passage is Romans thirteen eleven. Romans 13, 11. Do this, he says. Do this, knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. Here in Romans 13, Paul is now talking about the coming of Christ, the messianic age, that time when he takes and he comes and he gathers all who are his and our bodies are changed and we are now made more alive than we could ever believe. And he's looking for that. That is the salvation. That's what that's talking about. It's not my salvation out of and being forgiven. It's not salvation from drowning in the pool or from my sickness. This is the salvation for which we actually all are waiting for, but we don't remember. It is a salvation where all things are made new. (coughs) It is always important that we remember this truth. That we are saved, we are being saved, and we are always looking forward to being saved. And that salvation, that final aspect of the salvation, is the one that matters. It's when everything is finally made right. Every one of you in this room who is a Christian, you know what I'm talking about. You don't fit. You don't fit here. And some of you keep trying to fit, and you keep on screwing it up because you don't fit. You're not designed to fit anymore. You've been saved out of this age, and you're waiting for a salvation to come where you will finally fit. And every once in a while you'll get glimmers of what's to come, and you'll say, "Yes." And then the friends invite you or this or that, and you're like, "Oh, I should go." And you don't fit each day, each minute. It's driving all of creation to that great day when our enemies are finally vanquished. Sin and death is finally cast away, never to be seen, never to be tasted again. Satan's head will finally be crushed, no more to deceive and no more to destroy that, beloved. Oh, what a day that will be. next word is deliver. And the passage I want you to look at is Romans 7, 24. It's ruhomai. Ruhomai. It means to deliver. It's to rescue from danger, to save, to rescue, to deliver, to preserve. I'm going to start picking and choosing my passages again because I'm aware of the time. And so forgive me up there with the slides, but just work with me. In Romans 7, 24, he says, wretched man that I am, who will set me free, who will my me from the body of this death. This is the common cry of a man who sees his sin, even as a Christian. Paul is a believer here, and yet he sees his failings. He sees Look at me, I'm there again. Look at me, I've failed again. Look at me, I wandered into sin so easily. Oh, wretched man that I am who will save me from this. If there's a man that understood salvation, it's Paul. And yet, this is what he's saying. So the next time you wonder about why you despair, just realize you're no better off than Paul. It is the reality of a Christian. You fail a lot. As a Christian on this side of eternity, a person is beset by weakness, by stumbling, or as a hymn writer said it so well, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. That's the flesh, the lingering effect, and it can weigh on you at times to the point that it just brings intense despair, the sense of condemnation. And so even Paul, the great apostle, cries out, but he does so rightly. So notice what he says here. Notice what he's saying. Oh, wretched man that I am. So what does he know is not where to put his hope? In him, I am a wretch. So forget that. Embrace the fact, beloved, you're a wretch. All of you are wretches. Some are saved, some are not, but you're all wretches. And make sure I put myself in that category with you. So who? I have to look outside of myself. Who will deliver me? Who will rescue me? Not what must I do, not how do I fix this? No, the deliverance, the rescue is coming from another. And he knows who it is. It is Jesus Christ. And so we'll notice he then gives thanks to uh, in verse 25 through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he concludes it in verse 8, or chapter 8, verse 1. The very next verse, he says, There is therefore now. No condemnation. So what was he doing in verse 25? Four, I mean. He was condemning himself. And in verse one, what is he not doing? He's not condemning himself, or he might still be, but who is not condemning him? You tell me. Say it like you actually believe it. Oh, wretched man. Uh, I am. Who's going to set me free from this body of this death? Well, there's no condemnation. Anyone got a beer? Come on, beloved. It's your hope. There is now. Even as you beat yourself up, there is still now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, he looks to the future. Salvation. Who will deliver me from this body? That's a future work. I screw up all the time as a Christian. Who will deliver me from it? Well, all I know is this, that right now I have no condemnation from my Lord. He has saved me. He has justified me. He has carried away all of my sin. I am free, though I struggle and stumble and I'm a wretched man and I beat myself up. I am still free. And I look to the day in this state of no condemnation, knowing that on that day of great wrath, I will not be the recipient of it. Condemnation there is not him beating you up and saying, you're stupid. I feel so condemned. No, you don't. On the day of condemnation, you will know what you feel like because on the day of condemnation, all who are not in Jesus shall suffer his wrath. And there is none of that for us. And so he says in 2 Corinthians 1.10, 2 Corinthians 1.10, who delivered us from so great a peril of death. He's not talking about just dying as you and I think of it. He has delivered us, past tense, from a so great a peril of death and will deliver us. There's those two words again, ruhamai. He on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us. Three times he uses the term. He delivered us, past tense. will deliver future. Now, what's interesting here is that Paul is actually talking about a physical deliverance. Paul is referring here in this passage about the fact that he was under the threat of death and his companions were under the threat of death. And he's reflecting on it. And He's it's like a missionary coming and telling their story. And he was like surrounded by bad guys and they were gonna kill him. And God delivered him. And so he looks at that and he realizes that God has been kind, that as he goes out sharing the gospel and working, God is keeping him alive and that he's delivering him. But then he switches to a future deliverance, a full salvation. And all the while he says, notice, he says, he on whom we have set our hope. Notice the tenses here. All the while that we wait for the future salvation, we currently have this present abiding hope. Why do you come to church? You come to church so that you might encourage each other in that and remind each other. Let's skip all the way to Revelation 5.9. There's a series of words, they, they, they have to do with being, no, you know what, I'm going to just stop it here, and we'll just do this next week. I don't want to give up any of these. I <laughs> only got three more Sundays, so I'm, they're kind of like valuable, and you're like, which card am I going to play? <laughs> and this is not the card I was going to play, but I'm going to play it anyhow. We need to know more about our salvation, beloved. Some of you right now, you are in that reality of beating yourself up, and you, cut, you came here and you're heavy. And some of you, you're just scared because you got news from a doctor or you're not sure. In fact, you need to be praying for our, our sister, Linda Phoenix. She, she's in a hospital. Something's wrong with her heart. And so she uh, texted me just before I got up here that, that they found some more things wrong and they're going to keep her. Some of you are facing operations. Some of you are facing chemo. We have brothers and sisters up at the vine who are facing very difficult situations in their life. You are even saying, Oh, Father, just deliver me. And you're talking in a very physical, real way. And that's good and right. Some of you, you are still floating through life and you don't care one whit, you're just enduring enduring. You keep thinking that there's something out there that's going to get better, and it never will because it cannot. But let me tell you, beloved, that our Father is good to save. Our Father has done all that was necessary through the sending of His Son that in Jesus Christ, he becomes our sin bearer. He stands in our place. He takes your place. He takes your guilt. He takes your sin. He takes your condemnation. He takes your wrath. He does it all. And he does it to the perfection that you will never do. He suffered. He died. And then he rose. He rose again. So we don't serve a dead God that's sitting there with a gold around him. We serve a living God who is the true God. And so I bid you, come to him. Come to him. Don't have that repentance of sorrow. It will lead to death. A repentance of sorrow where you regret and you're sad, but you're not looking for a savior. Turn to the one with no regret to Jesus Christ your Lord. Let's pray. So Father, as we do prepared to go home, I'm going to ask, Father, that you open up our eyes again to grasp this salvation. Father, who is it that you have been placing upon the hearts of the people here that they need to speak about this salvation? Only you know, and I pray that the Spirit would work that in the hearts of each believer here, that they might realize that it is their task to speak of him. I pray for the ones who are not in Christ, Father, that they might see again that there is blessed hope in Jesus. Break hearts, Father, that need to be broken. Bind up hearts that need to be bound up. Let us all see that in Christ there is much to hope in and much to give thanks and rejoice in. I thank you, Father, for your mercies. They are anew every morning, and they are more than we can comprehend. In your Son's name, amen.